Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering Article 16 of Civil Government. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of Bethlehem Evangelical Lutheran Congregation in Mason City, Iowa, and my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. He is Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology and Director of Field Education at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Kuntz, welcome to Concord Matters. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, a real honor to have you on. And a couple things here, actually, before we get going today. Uh, first, I want to apologize to our listeners. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I had said in my introduction that I had accepted a call and would be moving to Mason City, Iowa from Southern Illinois and didn't anticipate any interruptions in there. And then I got to uh, Iowa and was just overwhelmed with unpacking and trying to settle in. And so had to run a couple reruns for a couple weeks. So thank you for your patience for that. I hope you enjoyed those two episodes rerunning and recovering for us. The beauty of our Lutheran hymnody and what we sing as Lutheran Christians in the church. But uh, glad to be back here and to pick up on this Augsburg Confession. And uh, likewise, I introduced you as Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology and Director of Field Education there at the Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne. But actually, you also have recently accepted a call, and you are headed to Trinity in Denver, Colorado. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, we'll be moving at the end of the school year, so late May, early June, to pastor the congregation there along with Adrian Sherrill. And they, they called me actually, and this doesn't fit into any synodical box, I guess, as pastor and evangelist because of some of the things that we're looking to do with starting new churches, uh, maybe new homeschool co-ops, of which Trinity has one. And that could potentially be more of a nationwide endeavor eventually, trying to raise up church planters throughout the Missouri Synod. So uh, a lot of exciting things happening in short. Yeah, it certainly is. And it's very conflicting for me because you're an excellent theologian and we love having excellent theologians at the seminary to train and raise up future pastors. But certainly sounds like you'll be continuing that work yeah. in some capacity out there. Right. And we always like getting good theologians back in the parish as well. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's very, right. very conflicting for me. <laughs> hate to lose you from the seminary, but glad to have you in the parish and doing that work as well. Yeah. And so uh, so we've both taken calls and yeah. life in chaos here. Uh, but uh, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so, so let's talk about government. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So uh, yeah, so today's topic that we have you on for is yeah. to talk about Article 16 from the Augsburg Confession of Civil Government. 
And of course, made the little joke there, but you know, some people might think that there's no way we should talk about government in the church. You know, there, there's just a whole realm of spectrum of how people think about this, but the Lutheran yeah. confessors thought it important to include this. And so great topic to get into here today. I'm going to go ahead and begin us by reading the article in its entirety from the Augsburg Confession. And of course, on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this is Article 16 from the Augsburg Confession of Civil Government. Our churches teach that lawful civil regulations are good works of God. They teach that it is right for Christians to hold political office, to serve as judges, to judge matters by imperial laws and other existing laws, to impose just punishments, to engage in just wars, to serve as soldiers, to make legal contracts, to hold property, to take oaths when required by magistrates, for a man to marry a wife or a woman to be given in marriage. And they cite Romans 13 and 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. Our churches condemn the Anabaptists who forbid these political offices to Christians. They also condemn those who do not locate evangelical perfection in the fear of God and in faith, but place it in forsaking political offices, for the gospel teaches an eternal righteousness of the heart. And they cite Romans 10, verse 10. At the same time, it does not require the destruction of the civil state or the family. The gospel very much requires that they be preserved as God's ordinances and that love be practiced in such ordinances. Therefore, it is necessary for Christians to be obedient to their rulers and laws. The only exception is when they are commanded to sin. Then they ought to obey God rather than men. And they cite Acts chapter 5, verse 29. And that is the entirety of Article 16 from the Augsburg Confession of Civil Government. All right, uh, a lot to pull out here, a lot going on. Yeah, I love this article. Again, I think it it's so contrary in a lot of ways to the way that we think as modern Western Christians. And there's a lot about the context that we just don't maybe understand and maybe even try to impose upon the theology of the relationship between the civil government and the church and things like that. And so a lot of things to get in here. So yeah. uh, Dr. Kuntz, go ahead and get us into this here. Why do the Lutheran confessors include this? And, and what's some important things to begin pulling out of this? The really specific reason that this is here is because there's an association made by their opponents whose slanders at this point they are trying to address in more or less open ways that the Lutherans, who call themselves the evangelicals, are aligned with people who are called by both Lutherans and Roman Catholics Anabaptists, that is, they rebaptize people. And Anabaptists, whose descendants will be the Mennonites or the Amish, uh, among others very directly, oppose altogether Christian involvement in public life, political life, right? And when we think of politics, or government, we tend to think of kind of the offices or the electoral processes, but you can see that what they mean are a wide variety of public ways of life, including marriage, uh, marriage, the military, civil government, the court system. So the main burden is simply to say, yes, it's okay for Christians to be involved in this realm of life, Whereas others who are also opposed to the papacy do not believe that it's okay for Christians to be involved and want to exit 
entire areas of public life. And I, I keep using the adjective public just because I think it's a little more comprehensive than when we say just government, which maybe we associate with the county or the county government or the state legislature or the governor of the state or something or the president of the U.S. Uh, public life is fine for Christians to engage in. And here's why, right? And here's the relationship spelled out specifically to government at the end. But it's all an attempt to differentiate themselves from those who you know, are also opposed to the papacy, but have a completely different vision of how and where a Christian should be involved in life outside of the church. Yeah, you mentioned in there that the descendants of that ideology, that uh, theology rather, is the Mennonites or the Amish. And in Southern Illinois, I had those around me a good bit. And, yeah. and you definitely see this. They, they're they very, you know, kind of anti being involved in that in so many ways. And, and some of that, some of the things they do, I, I have to say, you know, witnessing it and so forth. I think there's some wisdom for us as Christians to to consider yeah. because I think kind of on the other end of the spectrum and maybe not necessarily addressed here, but I think we should address it as well is that, you know, you kind of set up a theocracy, if you will, that, that mm -hmm. Christians get over-involved in government yeah. and almost look for their salvation there. Right. You want to talk about that, Al? Yeah. Yeah. Because that is maybe the major distinction between the Missouri Synod today and the Missouri Synod early on in its history is that early in its history, it is much more different from the surrounding society than it is today. And that's, that's good and that's bad. One way in which it's bad is simply that it means that today we don't see the value of certain things characteristic of the United States, such as religious freedom that our forefathers did. So we see religious freedom maybe as chaotic or maybe as confusing to people, and maybe that's all true. But the early Missouri Synod is happy to be out from under the thumb of a state because the issue with theocracy is that the state, and Luther says this, but others said it before him under different historical circumstances, the problem with a theocracy is that God never actually rules in a theocracy. That is, it is impossible for the church to rule over the state because the church does not have the physical wherewithal to command the state, really, finally. It can get token gestures, it can get obeisance, it can get tax benefits, but it cannot command the state what to do. Inevitably, the state's prerogatives and priorities end up taking over the church, which is what the forefathers of the Missouri Synod fled, and it's the very thing that is actually going to happen in the Lutheran Reformation eventually, right? So the Augsburg Confession is made largely by states and their rulers, different evangelical princes. That's fine. That's actually okay. That The separation of church and state is not envisioned here. But the problem is when church and state are not separate, eventually the state will end up taking over the church. And so what the people who found the Missouri Synod come over with is a, is a very lively sense that when the state is involved in the rule of the church, which you can see has nothing to do with this article, right? This is about Christians' involvement in public life. This is not about the state's involvement in the church. When the state and the church are too close to each other, even if the church think that, thinks that's going to be a good idea, Eventually, it means that the church will be ruled over by the state. So if the state says it's okay, then it's going to happen, which is how you get in a lot of still more or less state churches that are Lutheran in Europe. That's how you get things like gay marriage or the ordination of women or things that are plainly non-biblical. That's all because the church is not really being ruled by the word of God. It's ruled by the state. 
Yeah, and I like how you highlight in there too that it's important to remember that especially the specific context in here is that you had these princes who were presenting this confession and they were very obviously involved in the political and civil life and they saw it as their duty as Christians. And that's really important. Right. One of the other things I want to highlight here then too and kind of get us into this a little more is we have the, the heading, at least in the Concordia Reader's Edition that we have here, of civil government. And in the apology, it's of political order. Yeah. Now, I think there's probably things to like about both of those. I, I'll say I like the political order idea, especially as we come out of Articles 14 and 15 of order in the church and then church ceremonies. But I, I kind of call 15 an extension of Article 14. It's, it's all about having that right order in the church. And as Christians, as we see with the princes, the Lutheran princes and so forth, that as Christians, we see our Christian faith all encompassing. You yeah, know, we, right. we don't just have our church life and our civil life or our political life or those sorts of things. We, we view everything that we do as flowing forth from our faith. Right. And so there's an order there that we need to have as well. And so get us into some of these terms here and how the Lutherans are are wrestling with these things. Yeah, because order has a very long history in the church and involves I've been using the phrase realm. It really involves the same concept that maybe we have in English as my realm or or my sphere, or sometimes people say at work, you know, what's going on in your world? What they what they mean is your department of the company or something. So an order in this way is the way that God has set up different parts of life. How has he set up the church of God to be ruled? How has he set up public life to be ruled. And when we think about the noun politics or the adjective political, we shouldn't think just of processes, people who get elected to things, um, the people who have, you know, maybe a podium with a government seal on the front. We should think of political or politics as simply life in public, life with other people, which involves skills that we do call political. Negotiation, persuasion. But you know, that goes for business, that goes for marriage, that goes, I mean, any life in which you are involved in other people and their lives and their money and their property and everything that pertains to them, all of those kind of in catechism terms, those gifts under the first article under creation, how do we manage that? That's all politics, classically speaking. So political order is the way in which that public life with others is divinely ordered, should be ordered, right? And so when Luther's talking about this in the large catechism, he's going to say, well, I think the prince, instead of putting his head on the coin, should put bread on the coin so that we can be clear that public life and the prince are there in order to ensure that daily bread actually comes to us. You know, the means by which it comes are through devout and faithful rulers, uh, through good neighbors and the like. So all those kinds of things fall under political order. Yeah, and and then as they begin this article here, they talk about some of these things as the civil regulations are good works of God. They also teach to hold political offices, okay, judges, imperial laws, existing laws. Get us into some of those things as well. Those things are a list of both controversial positions. Um, and part of this that's not really being stated here is that there is a critique of those positions, not only because they wield powers of life and death as a judge does historically and 
the Lutheran Church has never had a problem, for example, with the death penalty, which perhaps Anabaptists opposed at that time because they thought that it was wrong for anyone to kill, not simply not to murder, which is the specific fifth commandment, but to kill, period. Whereas Lutherans have always said on the basis of scripture that killing when divinely ordained as punishment for especially the taking of life, the unlawful taking of life, is okay. The death penalty is prescribed in the Mosaic law, and that is a pattern or an echo of the natural law that we see in, for instance, Genesis 9. So it's okay to serve as a judge, the confessors are saying, because it is okay not only to punish people's bodies for infringements of the peace, but it's okay to take the life of a guilty man if necessary, right? And so similarly is the claim about just wars. So not every war, uh, not every reason for state aggression can be justified, and a Christian need not burden his conscience with serving in an unjust war. But if the war is just, that is, if it is carried out for historically very carefully defined reasons, especially a defensive war, then he may serve in it with a clean conscience. That doesn't mean that public life involves you know, total sinlessness any more than entering into a marriage is a promise that you'll never sin against this person. <laughs> I mean, I think that theologically at the bottom of avoidance of public life is an attempt just never to get involved in something that could be difficult or hard to make a moral decision inside of. And some people think that the way to avoid sin, and this is a comparison that's made especially in the Apology, it's a criticism of the monks, but I think we can make it here too of the Anabaptists. There's a similar impulse behind them, which is if I just avoid this situation and that situation and the other situation, then I won't sin. And then I will be practicing true Christian righteousness. The Lutheran insight, the biblical insight, is that a way of life pleasing to God is not found by avoiding every situation of potential danger, especially moral danger. A way of life pleasing to God is by orienting yourself to the practice of good works, such as God has commanded them, and then asking for God's forgiveness to cover over you, even when you're not aware that you've done anything wrong, right? As we do in the Lord's Prayer. So what is really at the heart of this article is a different vision of the Christian life than one where I simply avoid all difficulty and thereby preserve my righteousness. I like how you bring in marriage there, that if you avoid marriage because there's a potential to sin in it, right? right? And there's <laughs> obviously the potential to sin out of marriage, right? <laughs> right, and yeah. So, I mean, right. yeah, you just can't, you can't avoid, you know, these, well, the way that our, our society and that our life is ordered according to God's command in, in that public realm. Right. right. Yeah. And the avoidance of sin is a worthy desire. Uh, you want to do what is pleasing to God, but you don't want to do it in a way that causes you to avoid things that God has actually set up for the blessing of mankind. Obviously, that includes marriage, and that's the citation from Romans 13 is pertinent here, but it also includes the use of the sword, that is the ordination of government by God as his servant, for the punishment of wickedness and the reward of goodness. So you don't want to avoid things that are good works of God simply because in this veil of tears, the exercise of godly duties 
can also include because of the weakness of your flesh, not the evil of God's ordinance. Because of the weakness of your flesh and because of the sinfulness of other men, it could include morally difficult situations. Um, I think that the temptation to avoidance, you're right to point out, people don't think enough when they're thinking, oh, well, you know, politicians are bad because a lot of them are bad and, and things are bad and it's corrupt. So I'll just avoid that altogether. They don't think about the consequences of avoidance in the same way that someone that says, well, marriage is bad and and it's really difficult and it's really hard. So I'm just not going to get into it. They don't think enough when they're thinking of avoiding one thing of all the difficulties entailed by the other thing that they've chosen by avoiding the one thing whose difficulties they're very aware of. They've forgotten all the difficulties incumbent upon them now in the way of life that they will pursue instead. Yeah. And I think, and this is something that we really have to wrestle with and is maybe jumping to the end before we're even ready to quite get there yet, you know, of when we don't involve ourselves in these things, when we're commanded to sin. But I think as we're talking about, you know, serving in political office and especially the line there about just wars. Yeah. I think, you know, especially Christians that desire to be faithful and not want to just completely rush into something just because it's okay. Um, but we should think about, you know, okay, so yeah, the politics are quite corrupt and there are a lot of corrupt politicians. Right. That's not, I agree with you. That's not a reason to, you know, just avoid it entirely being involved. But at the same time, when you see just the overwhelming nature of it and that at times maybe even the the United States may engage in things that are that are not just right. wars. Yeah. Right. Help us wrestle with some of that. What's some ideas to follow and to think about, you know, how do I think about myself engaging in a right God pleasing way in these civil orders, even though there's corruption and difficulty there? Yeah. And the confessors themselves the princes involved are already doing this, for example, by contrary to imperial edict, sheltering Luther because they believe that it is disobedient to God to have a godly man arrested and likely killed or who knows what, uh, forced to recant, forced to go against his conscience. Uh, that's already happened years before the Augsburg Confession. So the issue here is that you are called to a life of uh, moral thought and attainment of clarity, of seeking the wisdom of God for your daily life, you're not called to a life of avoidance. Avoidance is one danger, and I've mentioned that. Sheer compliance with everything that anyone ever tells you to do is another danger. But it is like sheer avoidance in refusing to exercise capacities of discernment refusing to seek wisdom from God, as you're commanded to do in James 1, which would entail, you know, I don't go into, say, this realm of life because if I go into this branch of service, I probably will be sent on something that I just believe is morally wrong to do, or at least highly questionable, let's say constitutionally. So I'm not going to go into this branch of service, or I'm not going to get into this part of the court system because I don't want to, for instance, adjudicate divorces under current U.S. jurisprudence or whatever the case may be. That is up to you, right? That is up to you. But the reason it's up to you is because biblically you are called throughout the book of Proverbs, for example, to growth in knowledge and therefore also 
God willing, growth and wisdom. Wisdom is needed for these different things in life. So rather than avoiding them or rather than just going along with whatever you're being told at that second and saying, well, I don't have to think because I don't really have to have a conscience because this or that authority told me this was fine, whether what your mother-in-law told you about your marriage or what the government told you about, you know, being a soldier or whatever, you are called actually to discernment, to knowledge of scripture and then application of that scripture to life. And that is what the confessors themselves are doing. That is what they will continue to do. They're not simply complying, nor are they simply avoiding issues. They are trying to speak clearly on the basis of scripture about what the government's actually for. And I think that brings up a couple things, too, is that if you just completely avoid it and don't get engaged at all, well, then you're still going to be affected by these things. I mean, the, yeah. the political order is still <laughs> going right. to exist, right? Yeah. And I always think of a really good friend of mine in my first parish in Indiana who's a lawyer, and he just loathed the idea that all lawyers are corrupt, you know, just, you know, liars. And yeah. All those things that get thrown at lawyers, and I completely agree with him. And he viewed, I think, as a faithful Christian, probably the best way to approach his work, even dealing with divorces and things that he's opposed to as a Christian, he would always say, you know, have you considered reconciliation? You know, those sorts of things with his clients. He's going to push for faithful things and he's going to go into a courtroom, whatever the situation would be, and he's going to argue for justice, what is right. He's not going to try to get more than and of course, some lawyers do that, sure. right? Yeah, sure. But certainly not all, right. you know, and, and he would just look for justice. And I think that we need that. We need Christians engaging and exercising that. But then I think the other thing that this brings up too is, is at times I don't know if as Christians, we understand our responsibility enough that as we exercise discernment, sometimes you have to suffer consequences, Yeah, you know, that again, you're being faithful, you're standing up for the word of God and you're saying, I'm sorry, I cannot go along with this. But, you know, we feel like we're just going to be able to avoid all all things that come as a result of being faithful yeah, too. That's, and that's right. what I mean by consequences. Yeah, that's right. Because when we go through this list, we talk about having, you know, civil office, being judges, awarding just punishment, serving in wars, serving as soldiers, making contracts, holding property, getting into marriages. All of those things involve both potential moral hazards. They also involve lots of work. (laughs) Property doesn't take care of itself. Marriages don't maintain themselves. Court systems do not administer justice automatically. And I think that one of the great difficulties that Americans have or have had for so long, maybe because of things we've been told about America, is that America will just be free and good and prosperous by itself false. That's not true anywhere, nor has it ever been. So these all take lots of work and it is a godly thing. There's also a beautiful understanding of vocation here. It is a godly thing to devote lots of work to your county government, to your marriage, to the amelioration of the divorce system or something in our courts, whatever the case may be, all of it takes work. And that is a wonderful thing to pour yourself into is that work rather than saying, well, it'll just work out. (laughs) No, that doesn't happen without good people making it work out. These are civil offices. This is not heavenly righteousness. It doesn't just come down from above the way that God's righteousness comes down from above through the word of God. These are all matters of civic righteousness. Therefore, they involve the work 
of righteous citizens to be accomplished. I like how you highlight in there too, being involved in your local county government and your local city governments. And I think, you know, at times we get too globally thinking. Oh, yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of pressure from the media and those sorts of things that, uh, you know, we look for that big impact out there and rarely have it. But that importance of being focused in a more local area. And I like how our confession here specifically highlights marriage. And for us as Christians, that's where it should begin, right? And yeah. and we talk about this. You mentioned earlier the term realms. Uh, Luther will also use the term estates a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something important for us to talk about here as we engage in these things too. Where, where do we begin? Where would God's word direct us to look first? But uh, we're going to take a break here. We'll pick that up on the other side of the break as we continue talking here about Article 16 of Civil Government from the Augsburg Confession with the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Brady Finnern of Thy Strong Word. Join us to be renewed and refreshed by God's Word and to be pointed to our resurrected Lord Jesus every weekday from 11 to noon, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. matters as we continue looking at Article 16 of the Augsburg Confession on Civil Government with our guest today, the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. He is Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology and Director of Field Education at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And he has also been called and accepted the call to be pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado, and will be doing all sorts of exciting and wonderful things for the church there. Uh, the church at large. Uh, but uh, <laughs> as I set up just before break here, too, even as I say church at large, uh, I think and maybe maybe I'm letting my own politics out here that I'm I'm a true conservative, uh -huh. you know, not necessarily always aligning with the political conservative in, in our country yeah. as it's understood. But uh, I'm a true conservative that I think, you know, looking smaller, more locally, our first focus and our greatest impact is always there. And I, I'm firmly convinced that's where we have the best, you know, societal change at large as well. Right. And for us as Christians, God always directs us under the fourth commandment to the family. Right. Before we even get to the political orders of our city and county and, you know, as we organize ourselves here in this country. Right. And the way that we would talk about this at times as Lutheran Christians is using the language that Martin Luther would often use, which he kind of used some different things. He would talk about, you mentioned earlier, you know, our realm, mm -hmm. or he would talk about our estates, the estates of life and so forth. Right. Uh, help us get into some of that language and how that applies here to what we're confessing about our relationship to that civil life, according to this article here. Yeah. Those estates are usually identified as being three in number, the family, the church and the government. So this would apparently, this article would apparently largely just be about the government, but, <laughs> but you can see that family and government are sort of melded together here in the mention of marriage, because there are people, especially and most obviously the monastic system in medieval Europe is an avoidance of family. 
uh, if not also at times of government. So those estates are affirmed by Luther, are affirmed as good, what our article here calls good works of God. That is God's creations, God's vision for how human life actually functions and then also flourishes. So when we think about those realms or estates, those are all things that we're in. Uh, They're not really optional. We're born into families that are more or less intact. We are born into some relationship to Christ's church, either being reborn in it soon after birth or alienated from it, uh, aliens to the covenants of promise. We're born in a relationship to the civil government. The civil government gives us, uh, in the modern United States, a social security number. It marks us out, you know, on a birth certificate as the son or daughter of this man and this woman, uh, or uh, depending on the state, you were born in this person and this other person. <laughs> uh, that is that is a governmental choice. So estates are not something that we say, oh, well, you know, I just don't want to be involved in that. You're already involved by virtue of existing. And <laughs> that is also the price of avoidance because it's like, well, you don't get to have no relationship to these things. And that is maybe a fantasy that a lot of Americans have is that optimally, they would have no relationship to the government. And that's not really, I'm not saying like, oh no, like we need to have a certain size of government. I'm not talking about the size of the government, but I'm talking about a relationship to the functions of the government, primarily in the Bible, not necessarily, you know, the size of farm subsidies or the defense department, just, you know, punishment of wickedness, reward of goodness, justice, very simple things in scripture. We have a relationship to those things, whether we want one or not, and therefore we have a relationship to public life, whether we want one or not. It's it's also an argument that it really is impossible to have multiple definitions of what a marriage is or what a man is or a woman is in public life and not have political chaos. Because, yeah, even if I'm not married, the fact that this other couple is trying to, you know, have children without being married or wants to be married without having children, or wants to be married even though they're both women, that does actually affect me. Marriage is a public thing. It's not a private matter. My emotions might be private. My convictions or the ways in which I you know, wooed my wife might be private matters. I don't have to go state those in court. But the reason that these things have always been regulated is because marriage is a public institution in the same way that an army or a police force or a court system are public institutions. There are a lot more marriages than there are courts, and there are more people who are married than there are people in, you know, say, employed by the Department of Defense, I think. (laughs) But they're all public institutions. And so the public, even if they're not married or not in the army or not in the court system, is somehow related to the proper functioning, the proper definition, and the proper outworking of these things. Once again, I think highlights what you said earlier, too, that, you know, just avoidance of it doesn't mean that you're avoiding sin either. Yeah. Yeah. And creating all sorts of issues because, you know, there's, again, there's a whole spectrum of things going on in our contemporary society and in history as well that, There are some, even within the church, that have this idea, you know, well, let's just get the church out of the marriage thing and just let that be a civil thing. And and, and it's fine to let gay marriage and all of those sorts of things take place. And then there's the other side of the spectrum, too. Once again, even some within the church who say, 
no, we should just get rid of marriage from the political life and only Christians who desire this thing for their religious purposes have that. And we just have people that just kind of live together or whatever. But we know the outcome of that, right? We don't even have to live in such a society because we have multiple broken families and the avoidance of family and people just, you know, living together without that kind of political or not political, that civil relationship being there. And and you just have all of those sorts of issues that come up. So I think there's not an answer of just avoiding on either end of the spectrum or really in between, right? We, yeah. we have to understand that God has so ordered our life and that has our civil order in mind as we view it theologically because he has given it to us, right? Right. right. Yeah. And if you want a case study of how this works out, you could already look at the church's attempt to preserve some sort of biblical standard for marriage and divorce where it has had really no role in any kind of recent history in defining the grounds permissible for divorce, civilly speaking. So people can obtain divorces for all sorts of reasons, including extremely vague ones, legally speaking. And then the church has to really just handle the fact that that has a power and a force in people's lives, legally and financially and even psychologically, that the word of God doesn't. Every pastor is familiar with this because people, when they want to obtain a divorce, probably are not trying to obtain it, generally, usually, are not trying to obtain it for biblically defensible grounds of adultery or abandonment, and are not seeking, even if it is a case of adultery or abandonment, malicious desertion, are not seeking your counsel as to how to forgive one another and preserve the marriage. They're going to get divorced simply because it is permissible. So when the church exits the realm of definition— exits the realm of, as the confessors say, trying to preserve state and family as ordinances of God. Also with the functions and the nature assigned to them in scripture, right? I mean, this Christians can disagree about a lot of things politically because the word of God doesn't say this is how high the individual income tax rate needs to be. Uh, you know, we need to tax wealth more than we tax income from work. It doesn't say those things. So Christians can disagree about that. Christians can't disagree about whether the state should exist. Christians can't disagree about whether marriage is a public institution because they are in scripture and they are defined as such in scripture. So Christians can disagree about the husband and the wife have this or that role in, you know, decorating the living room. Okay. Christians can't disagree about whether the man is the head of the household or whether no-fault divorce is fine for Christians to do. And our avoidance or just irrelevance in those public debates about issues like divorce or anything else that's already come and gone. I mean, gay marriage is within our living memories. The definition of divorce or the permissibility of divorce civilly has come and gone, right? So we already know what it looks like when the church attempts to do something completely opposite from public life, even among its own members let alone for the good of our neighbors who may not even be Christians, but would be benefited by a state in which they couldn't just opt out of the marriage that has produced those children just because they want to. So the stakes of avoidance, I think, are extremely high. The stakes of compliance, we talked about a little bit. I'd like to talk about a little bit further just because those are things that have been much more immediate, especially in the past two years, what the stakes of compliance are. But The stakes of avoidance have already gone on long enough. We've already seen what it looks like when we just exit and try to say, that's fine, let the state do whatever it wants. Because the problem is we're all in these 
estates or realms of life, whether we want to be or not. <laughs> the church continues to exist not only as a divine institution, but also as a legally recognized civil institution of a certain kind in the United States, whether we want it to or not. Yeah. And I, I feel so bad about bringing this up when I have a professor on the show. Yeah, this is so unacademic. I'm not citing my source here uh, because I don't <laughs> have it and I don't remember where I came across it. But I remember I was actually just out of seminary and into the parish and I came across an article that I thought was really fascinating that, uh, it was very this very comprehensive study where they asked a whole bunch of pastors and congregations what led to most people leaving the congregation. And it was fascinating what they found was divorce. Yep. You know, as as we live in this permissible culture, you know, of no fault divorce and those sorts of things. And of course, it is just down on any pastor that tries to address that. As you said, we've just moved so far past that. Yep. And, you know, we we will get run out of congregations. I've seen yeah. brother pastors get run out of congregations for trying to call Christians to be faithful in these things. And, yeah, and no, exactly. this isn't a biblical grounds for divorce and you need to look to reconciliation, all those sorts of things. But, but anyway, back to that study that I'm not citing academically, but you know, <laughs> no because worries. I wish I would have saved it. I really do. Yeah. Because it said that, you know, that basically what they found was, is that with the divorces and so forth, well, obviously, you know, you feel uncomfortable being in a church then, especially if you didn't have biblical grounds. Sure. And then you also have these matters of, well, now you feel awkward. You know, you probably hate each other yeah. and you're not getting along or those sorts of things. Yeah. And so they don't come to that church and maybe at best they go off to other churches. But most of the time what happens is they just fall away from the church entirely. Yeah. And so, you know, what has caused the shrinking of churches isn't pastors and their boring sermons and all of those <laughs> sorts of things, right? It was divorce and just our permissiveness there. Yeah. So I think it speaks again to kind of those, you know, what's at stake if we, if we just kind of go along with it uh, and so forth. But yeah, no, that that's so good because the political order and its functioning, the public order and its functioning affects the order of the church. So you can see this if it's, you know, like a, a kid and, and he's really pretty old, but he's still kind of lashing out and can't sit still and, and hasn't really been trained by his parents. Similarly, if that kid's parents get divorced and now, you know, we're not really sure where he belongs on which weekend and, and if he's going to go to this church or go to that church or go to no church at all because, you know, because mom is, you know, angry at the pastor and whatever, but mom has him most of the time, the ordering of the family obviously affects the ordering of the church. We're all intertwined, right? Life is intertwinement with other human beings. And so the proper functioning of all of those various kinds of intertwining is much to be desired, much to be encouraged. And that, you know, like the article says, love is to be practiced in these things. Love could also be discipline, right, in the court system or in the family. So we can't really live in a world in which it's like everything is falling down, as so many families are, as even certain states are. Am I going to be safe when I get on this subway? Am I going to be, you know, this kind of thing? That's not a world in which it's going to be easy for the gospel to be preached, let alone believed. And so we want these things, even just for purely ecclesiastical reasons, because a world in which people are able to sit still, people are able to listen, people are able to bring their children to the church reliably is a much better world for everybody, including for Christ Church. Absolutely. Well said. Uh, did you want to talk any more then about what's at stake for compliance here? Yeah. Yeah, so compliance has to do with the biblical presumption that authority is actually good. And 
that does run contrary to a lot of streams of modern life where kind of the authority that that you're supposed to heed is maybe not your parents. You're supposed to rebel against them. Um, maybe it's not the government. If they're making a traffic stop, you're allowed to be belligerent with them. But um, you should obey the government when they, you know, close the church or, or want the churches closed for whatever number of months or in some government's years, right? Um, China is, uh, certain parts of China are in a lockdown as we record this. So the issue here is compliance is generally good, but it does have limits. And you can see this in the adjectives that the article uses, lawful civil regulations. Uh, obey God rather than men when laws are given that command us to sin. So there are exceptions to these things. And those exceptions to compliance have to do with hard limits on life. This is most clearly seen in what I think is the best development of the insights of this article outside of our confessions, which is in a document from about a quarter century later, the Magdeburg Confession, where they're really having to figure out because almost the whole empire gangs up on the Lutherans by the 1550s. You know, what are those limits? And they use a really clear example that I like to use when I'm talking about this because I think it's a little clearer than saying, oh, here's the politics of the Holy Roman Empire. Now figure out what's right and what's wrong. The Magdeburg Confession brings up the example of a family that falls into poverty. And so the father commands his wife and his daughters to enter into prostitution to make money for the family. And the confession says very clearly and, and really somewhat humorously, they would be right to pelt him with stones <laughs> because the integrity of their own bodies and their honor is more important than the fact that the dad is the head of the household, right? So there are limits on authority. Authority cannot command you to do anything it wants to just because it's in command. So there are lawful civil regulations and there are unlawful civil regulations. And when those things are unlawful, maybe we go along with it because it's not that bad. But when it's commanding us to sin, we can't go along with it. We have to obey God rather than men. And I do think it is very important, especially what we've come out of, and I pray we are coming out of it and, yeah. and don't go back more into it over the last couple of years here. And, you know, we don't need to kind of get into uh, specifics of individual congregations or those sorts of things. But but I do think that we should consider this as it relates to, you know, when the government says, well, you can't meet as Christians and it's for the sake of loving your neighbor and all of those sorts right. of things that get thrown right. out there. Uh, yeah. Well, but at the same time, we also have a responsibility to teach them not to fear death. Yeah. And yeah. puts us in this very awkward thing of, you know, well, how do I know when they're commanding me to sin or not? I mean, obviously, the father telling his daughter to go into prostitution that's a little more obvious, right? Um, but, but it gets a little messier when the government asks us to do other things. And, yeah. you know, yeah, we comply and God has given us the government to to regulate some of those sorts of things. But then at the same time, I don't know, it just gets messy. Yeah. So I yeah. do think that it's important for us to wrestle with this a lot, right? Yeah. And I, what I'm about to say is not like, you know, whatever. I mean, it, Everyone kind of was trying to figure things out and, and whatever. And, and harshness is, is never terribly upbuilding, generally. Um, but here's what's going on. What's going on is that Jesus Christ wants to rule his church through the word of God. So that's what decides what happens in the church service, in the congregation. That's how this works. The government does not rule the church of Jesus Christ. The word of God, the Holy Spirit, 
rules the church of Jesus Christ. So what has the word of God set out for Christians to do together? Well, it has outlined things that are entirely in person. Ministers are ordained, are sent by Jesus Christ to preach in person. That's why you have a pastor and not just kind of a talking head. And then baptism and the Lord's Supper are in person necessarily. Bread and wine to be eaten and drunk directly. Water to be poured out on bodies, a saving water to cleanse them. So that's the thing here is that the word of God is what rules the church of Christ and the word of God sets out in person an office of the ministry and means of grace administered by that office for the salvation of souls. That's the whole issue. The issue is not what are your judgments or my judgments about the validity or the credibility of governmental authorities or public health officials. It is about what will finally rule the church of Jesus Christ. And the issue here is something that we said at the outset, which is it's always going to be easier for the government to rule the church than for the church to actually heed the word of God. Because the government has so much more obvious, constant, apparent authority, especially in our day through media, that the word of God looks little and poor and weak next to. But I mean, that's the heart of the Reformation is that the word of God will decide matters in the church of Christ rather than the Pope or the government or anything else. Yeah, absolutely well said. And I think spoken in love, and I appreciate that because we do, we want to wrestle with these things and exercise discernment as you've accented there for us several times. But as we're kind of getting into the last 10 minutes or so here, want to hit a few more things on this. Yeah. Of course, we could do a whole episode on what we just talked about, but sure. I'm going to move us forward a little awkwardly here because I do think that there's some other things to talk about. Yeah. Earlier, you mentioned the monastic system with the avoidance of family, and that is mentioned here. And as I've brought up many times as we've gone through this, that generally in the Augsburg Confession, we will specifically condemn everyone by name except for the Roman Catholic Church, right? <laughs> uh, we just kind of do it in passing ways. But then we do specifically condemn the Anabaptists here, right, who forbid yeah. these political offices. Well, because, you know, we're not talking to them. We're not talking to that, the emperor, the Anabaptist, right? Well, he is the emperor, the Anabaptist, but uh, <laughs> you, you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we kind of have these sorts of things going on here. So on the one hand, we have they are avoiding the family, but then the other end, avoiding the political engagement and so forth. Get us into a little more here, too, of why we're condemning kind of these two ends of the spectrum there. Yeah, and they look a lot like each other, which is why also it's often easy for people to transfer immediately from spiritual, not direct historical, but spiritual descendants of Anabaptism. That is very, let's say, legalistic forms of Protestant Christianity. It's easy to jump from that to Roman Catholicism because there is no necessary spiritual change there. You were seeking a certain kind of perfection in your performance, and now you're seeking a different kind, maybe a more traditionally oriented or historically anchored form. But the insight is that spiritually it's the same thing. Uh, Luther will say something much like this in the Smoke Hall articles when he talks about that Roman Catholicism simply puts in the Pope's heart alone what forms of Anabaptism put in every man's heart, that is judgment over the word of God and therefore a certain obsession with personal practice and performance worked out in the life that is the sign that the man is sitting in judgment over the word of God rather than 
having the word of God judge his life. So the two ends of the spectrum here are on the one hand, historically, people that are going to seek generally an avoidance, but it will be an avoidance practiced by groups of people, married people. These will eventually, many of them, not all of them, but many of them will be called the Mennonites. Out of the Mennonites in the 17th century will be the split that forms the Amish. But there are other groups in Reformation times uh, in Austria and different parts of Germany in uh, maybe France. There are predecessors to these impulses among maybe the Cathars in southern France in medieval times. So this is an ongoing debate. Where do I find what the article describes as evangelical perfection? And the Anabaptists are seeking it in avoidance of public life, although not of all of these institutions because they're not avoiding marriage by and large. But their descendants, their literal descendants, even genetically in the case of some of the Swiss Anabaptists, are the Mennonites and the Amish at this point. Their spiritual descendants are much more numerous. And we see attempts at perfection of life by groups often committed to communal living, therefore containing within the church group all of these functions of political life that as Lutherans, we don't need to, we, we, don't, we don't need every magistrate to be a Lutheran. We don't need a kind of theocracy either on a miniature scale in say a Hutterite commune in North Dakota or on a macro scale as say, you know, the way that the state of Utah has often functioned, maybe still does function with the Mormon church, which in this way is very much a spiritual descendant of the Anabaptists of that what's called the radical reformation. That seeking of evangelical perfection somewhere outside the fear of God and faith in Christ, which is where the confessions put it, you also see in Roman Catholic monasticism, which is just, I think, a more isolated version of the same spiritual problem. It's isolated from a lot of those elements of public life that would turn anything, any polity, into a theocracy. But it is spiritually identical in a search for perfection in performance. So this order is more strict than that order. This way of doing things, whether we wear shoes or we don't wear shoes, is better or worse, uh, is going to produce more or less humble people, such that you get in modern day Anabaptism many of the same, I mean, many of the exact same things that you get in Roman Catholic monasticism. And I, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I've spent a lot of time around Mennonites and Amish. That was my first call, was in the heart of Amish country, you have the exact same things that you get with Roman Catholic monasticism. So to outsiders, they all look the same, right? Just as maybe to a non-Roman Catholic, all Roman Catholic religious orders look the same. When you're around them enough, you know that the color of the garment, the shape of the garment, for the Amish, also the kind of buggy they're driving, what color it is, does it have a roof or not? In Indiana, they don't have roofs. All of those things tell you who they are and where they're from and what their leadership believes is necessary. And that is an identification of specific ways of living with the best way of being Christian that is really just flatly contrary to the New Testament. Paul can be a Jew to the Jews and a Greek to the Greeks because the food people eat and how they sit and how they take their meals and when they eat and how they live and who they talk to and who they hang out with is not in the nature of Christian righteousness, which is, as the article says, an eternal righteousness of the heart, which can exist in a variety of different cultures with different ways of dressing and different ways of eating and different ways of living. And so the Anabaptists and the monks have 
all of these commonalities, sometimes very literally the same commonalities of obsessions over dress and its color, for example, that show you that they don't really, they have not grasped the nature of the gospel because they are still obsessing over these things in a way that, you know, the apostle of Christ is indifferent to them. He can go to different places and be with different people because the righteousness that he brings is not a righteousness that has to be expressed through clothing or dress or food or any of these other things that people tend to obsess over. All right. Fascinating conversation. Loving it so much. Unfortunately, we need to wrap up there today with just one minute left here. So go ahead and give us uh, your concluding thoughts and how this article relates to our life and within the Augsburg Confession here. Within the Augsburg Confession, the article is attempting to make clear something that was probably a slander against the evangelicals that they hated public life, as did others. For our lives today, this article is immensely helpful in its clarity about what God has ordained. Therefore, what is a good thing to live in and to pursue and to devote ourselves to, and what the difference is between that and the eternal righteousness of the heart that only Christ brings through the gospel. All right. Next week, we will take a look at Article 17 on Christ's return for judgment from the Augsburg Confession. For today, thank you to Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz for joining us and teaching us the Lutheran Confession of Civil Government from Article 16 of the Augsburg Confession. It's been a great pleasure having you join us today. Thank you so much. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. Church.